0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we're continuing our series, The Triumph of the Lamb, in the book of Revelation, and we'll be studying chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, with a message entitled, Restoring Your First Love. Let's join Dr. Newfeld now.
1: Have you ever wondered what Jesus might say if he were to visit your church? After all, your church belongs to him. He created the church. He's the chief shepherd and therefore the chief authority over your church. And in the final day, your church, along with every other church, will answer to him as to whether you have done the things he commanded you to do. Your church is not yours. It's his. And so let me repeat the question. What would Jesus say if He were to come to your church? What would He approve of? What would He utterly condemn? What words of warning and what words of encouragement would He bring to you? Now, if you're surprised that Jesus would speak that way to your church, Revelation chapters 2 and 3 tells us exactly how Jesus would respond were He to visit your church. As we find Jesus speaking to each of the seven churches in this book, we find a pattern, and it's repeated with every single church. First, Jesus identifies himself. He'll call himself the first to the last, or the one who has the sharp two-edged sword in his mouth, or the one whose eyes blaze with fire and so forth. Indeed, Jesus identifies himself in exactly the same way as he identified himself in the first chapter of Revelation when John fell at his feet as though dead. Jesus presents himself in all his splendor. But why does he do that? Well, for one, Jesus wants his church to understand who he is in all his glory. They are to revel in Him. They're to delight in Him. They're to fear Him. They are to take Him with all seriousness. And so it's essential that they become aware of His greatness. And second, Jesus does that because a part of who He is is to be taken to heart by every local church. You know, perhaps some of their victories are related to His glory. Or perhaps some of their failures are related to their neglect of His glory. And concentrating on an attribute of Jesus is the very thing that a local church needs in order to be what Christ demands them to be. Okay, first, Jesus begins by identifying himself. Second, he tells them what he finds noteworthy or praiseworthy in each church. As we're going to see, one of the seven has absolutely nothing that Christ finds praiseworthy. That's the church of Laodicea. How sobering that must have been. Now, third, Jesus then finds fault with each church, demanding they repent of their errors. And here, as we're going to see in two of the churches, that is, in Smyrna and in Philadelphia, he offers no criticism at all. Again, how sobering that must have been. And then finally, fourth, there contains a word of promise, particularly to those who conquer. See, interestingly enough, we can also apply this kind of language to our own individual lives— And to this, I would say at least two things. First, if you've never repented of your sins and surrendered your life into the hands of Christ, well, then know this. No matter who you are, Christ makes demands of your life. Now, that can be very good news because you might become aware of your sin against Him, and you might therefore come to Him asking Him for mercy. That should lead you to discover that Christ died so that you might receive His free gift of forgiveness. What you need to do is to surrender your life into His hands and trust Him to utterly transform you. You might do that by simply offering up a prayer, Jesus, I've sinned against you and against your Father. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sake. Here's my life. I give it into your hands. But if you've already come to Christ and know that your sins are hidden in Christ, you also have a task. Christ is determined to burn every impurity from your life, and you must pay attention to Him so that you will not be ashamed. You know, one of the very sad facts about many modern churches is that the way that we have forgotten the glory of Jesus, and we've not seen who it is that we're dealing with. You know, I regularly sense that people want church to be uplifting and practical and relevant to their lives, and and all of that's good. But all of that's not enough until you see Jesus in his glory and see what it is that he demands of you you'll never experience his joy well very well let's let's begin with the first church in revelation the church in Ephesus i'm reading revelation chapter 2 verses 1 to 7 to the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks among the seven golden lampstands If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now The church in Ephesus had been founded by Priscilla and Aquila, that great missionary couple that are mentioned in the book of Acts. The Apostle Paul, according to Acts chapters 19 and 20, spent a considerable time there. It was there that he encountered some who were followers of John the Baptist who had never believed in Jesus, and it was there that Paul led them to faith in Christ. It was there that seven sons of Skeva, an itinerant Jewish exorcist, was driving out demons in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches without knowing Jesus in the first place. And it was there that a silversmith, a man who had a growing business of making idols, started a riot in the city claiming that Paul's preaching was putting in danger his business. You know, the book of First Corinthians was no doubt written while Paul was staying in Ephesus, and there in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 32, Paul said that he fought wild beasts at Ephesus. He no doubt meant that he had been thrown to the arena for his preaching and had fought wild animals to the delight of the crowds and that he had survived. Now, I raise all these incidents to get a sense that idolatry and false teaching and rigid persecution were always significant in the life of this church. Indeed, if we took the time to get to know that ancient city of Ephesus, we would soon find out that it was one of the most important cities in the ancient world. The city itself was located in what was an important trade route, and consequently it had become wealthy. The city has recently been excavated, and what we're finding is a very impressive city. It had theaters, baths, libraries, and all the trappings of what was then a modern city. If you arrived at this city by sea, you would get off your ship, you'd disembark, and immediately come to a road which was about 35 feet wide, made of marble and lined with columns that led to the center of the city. It was magnificent. This was the trading capital of Asia. But far more important than this, Ephesus boasted a structure which has become known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It's the famous Temple of Diana. The building was four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens. It contained the image of the goddess Artemis, or Diana, which it was believed fell directly from heaven to the very spot that temple was built on. She's depicted as a woman with many breasts who seemed to have been a mother goddess. She inspired some form of a fertility cult. And also of interest is the fact that Ephesus had a rule that anyone living within a certain proximity of the temple could not be arrested, so Ephesus attracted some very interesting citizens to say the least. It was a haven for every form of teaching and tolerated many forms of cultic religion. But of course, there were many temples in the city, and one of them was the temple dedicated to the Roman emperor Domitian, who was worshipped as a god in that city. Hence, the city had a robust emperor cult in which the city celebrated that Domitian had a title, Lord and God. So, Ephesian Christians were constantly being bombarded with religious options. Their great temptation was to give in to false teaching. When Paul last visited this city, he was concerned with exactly that. And Here's what he said, and I'm reading from Acts 20, verses 29 and 30. He said, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth to draw away disciples after them. You know, the phrase from your own number is most likely a reference to the elders of that church. Even they would distort the truth. And if you read 1 Timothy, you'll know that the situation had become so bad in Ephesus that Paul sent Timothy there, in his words, to charge certain people not to teach false doctrines. This was the central issue of that church. So let's find out what Jesus says to that church many years later as we read Revelation.
0: It's happening. After a two-year break, Back to the Bible Canada is inviting you to join us February 2018 for a celebration Caribbean cruise. One week of cruising pristine waters, visiting beautiful island vistas, and most importantly, joining the Back to the Bible Canada ministry team, including Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Phil Callaway, special musical guests, and new friends from coast to coast in a time of reflection, refreshment, worship, and fellowship with God. God's people. These events have been incredibly popular, so don't hesitate to reserve your spot now and sail the Caribbean with Back to the Bible Canada. For cruise and registration information, call us at 1 800 663 2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca. And an important reminder to all of our Back to the Bible Canada listeners, no ministry funds are used to facilitate vacation events. The entire cost of the event is met exclusively by those who participate.
1: If your church is struggling in a given area, the good news is you can win. You can overcome. In our day, there are great many churches who, because of our religiously and culturally pluralistic society, have given in to all matter of false teaching. And the good news is that you don't have to stay there. Like the church in Ephesus, you can learn to become a doctrinally solid church. Years ago, I heard a wonderful illustration. The story is told of a public train system that was going broke because it had an honor system of payment. It turned out that most people were riding for free. In order to change their fortunes, the management decided to install a turnstile in which every single ticket would be checked. They placed an employee at the turnstile, and every single passenger had to pass by him and have their ticket stamped before they entered the train. The first day, many of the passengers complained and had a nasty word to say to that employee because they secretly knew that they could never get away with riding for free again. Finally, one of the passengers said to the employee, I suppose you know that no one likes you, to which the employee responded by pointing at the management booth above the turnstile where his boss was watching his activity. He said with a smile, you know, that's true, but he likes me. You know, some of us need to have that same attitude. Indeed, when we come to the book of Revelation, something marvelous had happened to that doctrinally troubled church of Ephesus. Perhaps it began under Timothy's leadership. No doubt because the Apostle John made that church his church home, they had become serious about doctrinal error. I mean, after all, it was John himself who had taught, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. And somewhere along the way, the church in Ephesus closed the door to heresy. They became a doctrinally pure church. And Jesus commended them for that. And so when Jesus introduces himself to this church, he speaks of himself as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. You remember that the seven stars are a symbol of the seven angels which guard and protect each of the seven churches. Christ's strong warriors have been watching over them, and that's the reason that they have overcome false teaching and heresy among them. But Jesus is also the one who walks among the lampstands. Not only has his angel watched over them, but Jesus himself has walked in their midst. You know, that message must have sent chills up their spine. I mean, how precious that knowledge must have seemed. You know, and then after introducing himself to the church in Ephesus, Jesus begins to mention that which he approves. He approved of their hard work, especially how diligently they worked to root out the evil of false teachers. They tested what people said. Apparently, at this time, there were still some teachers who claimed that they were apostles. But the Ephesian Christians did their homework and tested them, finally becoming active in learning and examining everything by the truth of Scripture. Tolerance of wicked men is not a virtue. If you, by hearer, don't learn truth sound Christian doctrines, then you are easily led astray. It's not a virtue to tolerate that which is not in accord with sound Christian teaching. Notice also verse 6, that Jesus commends them for hating the works of the Nicolaitans, which Jesus says he also hates. We're not told exactly what the false teaching of the Nicolaitans was, but we can make some guesses. You know, some suggest that because these teachers claimed to be apostles, that they claimed to be equal with Peter and Paul and John. These teachers claimed that they had received a direct revelation from God, and while they were making these claims, they actually contradicted the teachings of Christ. And the Ephesian congregation would never tolerate anyone who claimed to have a revelation from God that contradicted the one truth that had once for all been laid down for the saints. You know, some say that these teachers claimed that you could be in Christ and worship at the temple of Diana. So they advocated sexual immorality and the worship of idols alongside of the worship of Christ. So broadly speaking, they had worked out a compromise between Christianity and the paganism of the day. See, whatever the issue was, hear this. Jesus approves when his followers do not tolerate false teaching. He approves when his followers take a stand for truth, even when it's not popular with the world. I wonder if there's ever been a time with as many doctrinal irregularities as there are today. We have everything from people claiming to be Christian while denying the Trinity, to people who claim that Christianity is a means to become rich. You know, we have people who claim that they're Christian while supporting sexual sin or arguing against plain teaching in Scripture. You know, Christ approves when we take them on. Indeed, by naming the Nicolaitans, he even approves when we name the error. But with all that was noteworthy, and hear me, every virtue carries with it the potential seeds of its own destruction. Look at verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned your first love. Now, this might well refer to either love for Christ, or it may refer to Christian love for one another. Now, if it's love for Christ, then the application is clear. It's possible to become doctrinally solid, but to have no deep personal love for the person of Jesus. But if, on the other hand, it means love for one another, then the application is also equally clear. It's possible to become so involved in rooting out false teaching with the result that one becomes suspicious of everybody— And in the process, no one feels safe, safe to express viewpoints or safe to express their doubts and their uncertainties. Now, I don't know if verse 4 refers to love for Christ or, or love for fellow believers, but in one sense, it really doesn't matter. I want you to listen closely to what this passage teaches. It's never enough to be doctrinally pure. Yes, it's important to be doctrinally pure, but I've met people who have all their doctrines understood and memorized and articulated. These very same people sometimes don't reach out to the lost and don't bear with people who are sitting and become hypocritical judges of just about everybody. And when that happens, we need to ask just how serious is such a situation? So listen to the answer, and it's astonishing. It's found in verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Remember that in Revelation, Christ walks among his lampstands and each one represents his churches. To remove a lampstand means that Christ himself removes that church from before him. You know, it's a staggering thought. Christ is absolutely insistent that his church be known for their love, for their compassion, for their showing forth of his mercy, and for their passion to worship him as Lord and God. And with that comes a promise found in verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Just so we understand, the idea of conquering suggests warfare. All of your life, as you serve Christ, will be a battle. One moment you may be fighting false teaching, and the next moment you may be fighting an unloving attitude towards your brother. And because it is the Spirit speaking to the churches, we should be comforted. For as Romans 8.26 teaches us, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. Even though the Christian life entails a battle, a great spiritual warfare, we need not fear. The Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. And with that is the command to continue the fight. But with the command comes a promise. You will eat of the tree of life. You know, that tree of life was first introduced in Genesis chapter 2. You know, after the fall of Adam and Eve into sin, Genesis 3.17 says that lest they in their sin take from the tree of life and eat and live forever, they were thrown out of the garden. But in Revelation chapter 2, all overcomers are told to come and eat and live forever in the paradise of God. And so, dear Christian, never cease fighting for God's will to be accomplished in your life and never lose your passion for Christ and your love for the people of God. The rewards are simply far greater than ever we should pass up. Fight for holiness. Fight to do God's will. Remember who you are and what it is that you are called to do. Remember also that the great God of eternity invites you to taste deathless eternity. What an offer. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your truth.
0: John, I'm excited about this series, and particularly as you teach about the churches. Uh, So much just comes to light in respect to how we live out our lives as the church and as individuals. Uh, But one thing you had mentioned was that sort of that sense of sometimes we become over or underwhelming doctrinally, where we focus too much or too little. It really is demanding of us that we not only know Christ, but we live for Him.
1: Yeah, isn't there an interesting balance in this message to this church, You know, we don't really have to choose between doctrinal purity and being loving people. We really can be both. And it is important for God's people to identify and to root out error But at the same time, while we're doing that, I think it's the motivation, Ben, that we must have. The motivation has to be not to prove ourselves better than another, but rather to help that individual find the truth themselves and to glorify Christ, because pure doctrine should be a part of our worship of Christ at the same time. So we're going to have to find a way that truth and worship and love all go hand in hand with each other. I mean, that's the challenge of the church. And yeah, Christ demands it so much that he says that he would remove our lampstand from its place if we will not accomplish that.
0: Those are great words. Thanks so much, John, for this continuing series in Revelation. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. At Back to the Bible Canada, we believe we share a special relationship with our friends and listeners across the country. A relationship characterized by a common purpose, a fellowship in the gospel. This relationship, this partnership, impacts the lives of real people journeying through life's challenges, disappointments, and struggles. So when we partner in prayer or offer a financial gift, we make a tangible impact. So may I ask you to consider a special financial gift this month? Would you help us share critical Biblical insight on living out God-honoring marriages and relationships? Your gift not only supports the airing of our Bible teaching programs, but allows us to make resources like Celebration of Marriage available free on CD for anyone who asks. Help us impact, sustain and restore relationships, marriages and otherwise. Ask for your free copy of Celebration of Marriage for yourself or to share with someone who might be encouraged. Call us at 1 800 663 2425 or visit online at backtothebible.ca.